The Brief from Open City is supported by Bloomberg Connects, a free guide to the world's best art exhibitions and museums. the sound of Tanari Wen. We're playing that clip because this week's show is put out in memory of Peter Buchanan, a remarkable architectural writer and editor who has died aged 80. Peter was a formidable voice in architectural journalism, travelling Europe as a younger man by train, bus and foot, photographing the buildings he wrote about himself in an era when following developments in contemporary architecture overseas was far more challenging than it is today. He was also the titanic voice behind the Architectural Review's Big Rethink series, an erudite and far-reaching reappraisal of modernism and modernity itself, which I was lucky enough to work on as Peter's research assistant during my time at the AR. I'm sure Peter wouldn't mind me saying he was a rather single-minded character, which at times made him a challenging figure to work with. I remember he would insist on coming into the office on press day to handwrite the captions for his essays in person. But he also had moments of genial generosity, including when he spontaneously gave me tickets to see Tanaruwen, who I'd never heard of before, play an extraordinary gig at the Barbican Concert Hall. If you've never read Peter's Big Rethink, I highly recommend it, particularly the first nine essays, which are, in my opinion, the most strident. We'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find them on the AR's website. For now, thank you, Peter, and on with the show. London faces a crisis of dullness as eccentrics and creatives are driven out of the capital. Loo deserts across swathes of the capital, excluding people and causing a surge in public urination. The UK's first anti-apartheid centre to open next year, and just one week to go until the largest celebration of architecture and neighbourhoods in the country, Open House Festival. My name is Finn Harper, I'm an architecture critic, and I'll be interrogating this week's big stories in architecture, planning and housing news. Welcome to The Brief from Open City. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Nabil Al-Kanani. Nabil is a built environment professional, cultural producer and guest curator for the Open House Festival 2023. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Have all London's characters been driven out of town? This was the question posed in the Evening Standard last weekend by editor of the Homes and Property section and former guest on this show, Prudence Ivy. Ivy dwelt on the exodus of larger-than-life, eccentric and expressive Londoners she has noticed leaving the capital. As someone who grew up in London in the 90s and noughties, Ivy says she has witnessed a worrying decline in vibrant individuals and iconic characters over the last 20 years. She attributes this trend to the dwindling availability of affordable living arrangements, the decline of small music clubs and gay bars, as well as the looming extinction of unique venues within the city, special places that were magnets for special people. Only last week, the Londonist blog reported that the India Club, a legendary South Indian restaurant and event space serving in-the-know Londoners on the Strand for 70 years, will be closing its doors for the final time next month. In a story that is now common across London, the leaseholders of the building, which occupies 143 to 145 Strand, Marsden Properties, have fought a campaign to evict the restaurant, once a regular meeting place for the Indian Journalist Association in favour of gutting the building for conversion into yet another luxury hotel. 
More than 22 grassroots venues around London have closed their doors forever since last April alone, according to the Music Venue Trust, and even large venues are not immune. The O2 Brixton Academy in South London is fighting to reopen after the Met Police called to have its licence revoked last December. Elsewhere beyond London, the historic Crooked House pub in Staffordshire, dubbed Britain's wonkiest pub, grabbed headlines after the 18th century building was gutted by a mysterious fire on the 5th of August and then pulled down just two days later, prompting a public outcry and questions of wrongdoing. So, Nabil, Prudence talks about how memorable characters with larger-than-life personalities and gregarious dress sense who were once found in every neighbourhood in London in the 90s and noughties now seem to be much rarer. She talks, for example, about the Islington Twins, known for frequently gracing the style pages of subculture mags, the Hackney Mole Man, who famously dug extensive tunnel networks under his home, and the countless lesser-known names who were nevertheless woven into the fabric of city life. I guess she's essentially arguing that London has become a bit normy, or maybe a, a more hostile place to those who don't fit a kind of narrow idea of how a citizen should look and behave. Um, I'm interested in what your experience of all this is. Have you observed a sort of decline in London eccentrics? Is the capital becoming a less welcoming place for the, the wacky and colourful characters that Prudence Ivy remembers? 100%. I think anyone who grew up in northwest London can attest to the amazing characters that we witnessed in the notorious Sunday Wembley Market. The uh, the sort of loud gentlemen and and women who were selling all sorts of goods from all over the world, um, and their braggadociousness and and character sort of exuding from their stores. Um, can't really say that you can see much of that anymore. We've, I think, as a city, taken a turn towards the sort of curated and the scripted rather than the spontaneous and unpredictable, and. You know, you, you you start to create an environment where things become a little bit predictable and and sterile. Yeah, I mean, like as a cultural producer, is 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 a sort of nostalgia playing a role here? Like, why do you think London was once uh, seen as this kind of magnet for creative creativity and tolerance compared to other parts of the country? And why has that changed? What has changed? I think there's an, a number of contributing factors that are uh, sort of created this sort of hodgepodge melting pot of London and are such a cliche term to say but there are histories of migration and 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 alternative ways of life and the sort of cross-pollination of that that happens in London and other cities across across Britain but the capital being one of the most populous mm. um, uh, centres in Britain kind of personifies that cross-pollination and that sharing of one's culture one's worldview one's sort of values and that's manifested in, in, in food, in fashion, in, in arts and culture. Notting Hill Carnival is a perfect example of that. And I think once upon a time, the city, in a way, valued alternative views, alternative cultures. And now where the tolerance between populations in London is under threat, perhaps. And I think the pursuit of capital is potentially mm. one of the mm. the main sort of barriers to organic interactions and culture. Yeah, Ivy's talks, I mean, I, I guess Prudence Ivy is, is editor of the Homes and Property section, so she, she's particularly interested in that. How does this relate to housing? How does this relate to the value of land? 
And in her, her piece, she says, well, maybe it's to do with the closure of uh, independent clubs, uh, a lack of housing, uh, affordable housing, closure of DIY venues, of antique shops. Um, she sort of points out that in the 70s and the 80s, squatting was not criminalised. You know, you could take shelter in an abandoned building and, you know, not be afraid of the police. Um, and local councils also at that time were, you know, uh, renting buildings that uh, out to housing um uh, cheaply as kind of housing cooperatives, or it was just much, much easier to find a sort of secure-ish place to to live and exist in the city. Um, I wonder, what, what do you think that the effect of kind of changing housing policies over the last few decades has had in kind of gentrifying London and on pushing some of these kind of uh, more creative people out of the city who who maybe don't fall into the kind of typical mould of an everyday worker and, and, and struggle to kind of compete with the housing market as it has become more and more extremely expensive to live here. We've started to see a decline in social housing being built across the country since the Localism Act. Um, and we've started to see a rise of private rental schemes being sort of fast forward mm. development happening all across the country. Multiple private sector organisations building large swathes of the city, all of which are backed by sort of shareholder interest and mm. uh, have have a bottom line of maximising a return on investment. And in order to do such thing, you must cater and you must design around those who have the most amount of expendable income. And they tend to not be sort of racialized working class people in Britain. Also, an undeniable fact is that mostly racialized, mostly working class people forms the bedrock of the creative and cultural scene in Britain. Nearly every single celebrated artist, singer, rapper comes from a racialized working class background. And so if a city isn't designed around these specific populations, then you you risk marginalizing them and... Um, kind of not creating the infrastructure needed to nurture sort of the talent and, and creative expression that exists. So that's why everyone's moved to their, their phones. You, you'll see more creative expression on TikTok and on Instagram rather than manifest in a physical space. Yeah, I mean, just in a personal capacity, you know, I'm, I'm fairly well off, I'm white, I'm fit. And yet even I'm getting spat at in the street for wearing skirts or shouted at from cars just in the last couple of months. Because a guy following me down the road, filming me, like shouting at me, like, why are you wearing a skirt? Um, and it is, uh, you know, it does push you online because you're like, OK, well, you know, maybe I can't express myself in the public sphere anymore. So what what other tools do I have? Well, maybe Instagram is is the kind of obvious thing that you reach for. Um, moving on slightly, the, you know, the the India Club in London and, and the Crooked House in Staffordshire, uh, the Crooked House pub, sorry, that I mentioned in my intro, quite different stories in very different locations. But what they share is maybe that these cultural venues are just not always valued by landlords, and um, that's leading to their their closure or, or even their kind of demolition. What could be done to kind of temper the power of landlords to that they have to simply kind of crush these cultural and civic institutions overnight? You asked me to solve the city's biggest problems. <laughs> um, it, it it's quite difficult um, because in Britain the landowner is the most valued 
individual group entity. And so uh, they have the most amount of lobbying power, the most amount of decision-making power. But there are interventions that these groups can, can try and employ, um, one of which I'm a huge advocate for is the, the Greater London Authority's culture and community space is at risk team mm. who are uh, a sort of task force ready to swoop in and provide advice and support to organizations that that are faced with eviction or faced with unfair treatment from from landlords one thing uh that i've also noticed is how uh, creative and cultural spaces within the city don't have secure tenure anywhere I think the design district uh, where we're currently recording is one of the only permanent spaces in a sort of urban environment that that allows for sort of the, the meanwhile uses of creative and cultural sort of occupational space, but never a permanent home for it. So I would advocate for sort of a long-term plan for organisations to 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 use the community support that they have to advocate and to campaign for permanent tenure somewhere close to the people that they serve. And that looks different according to each organisation and, and who they choose to serve. A recent report has exposed the emergence of loo deserts spreading across the London Underground Network, raising pressing concerns over the accessibility and convenience of the capital's major public transport system. According to the Evening Standards coverage, the Loo League Table report, authored by Caroline Russell, a Green Party member of the London Assembly, warns that less than a quarter of stations in zones one to three have toilets. The issue of accessibility compounds when you consider the distribution of these facilities. While 83% of stations on the Metropolitan Line have toilets, just 27% of the Northern Line stops do. And passengers travelling on this line will experience London's longest loo desert, stretching 12 stops between Elephants and Castle and Morden. Even Bank Station, which completed its seven-year, £700 million upgrade earlier this year, is still without a toilet. The scale of the problem extends past the perimeters of the tube map, with 50% of public toilets in the UK closed in the past decade. A surge in instances of public urination has been reported, and now more than four in five Londoners are unhappy with the number of public toilets, according to a survey by Age UK. So their CEO, Abigail Wood, said, quote, The loo leash where people don't leave their homes as much as they might like to because of worries that they will not be able to find a public toilet is a significant cause of social isolation. This landmark study comes as the black hole continues to grow in council budgets who are responsible for providing and maintaining many public toilets. The average local authority is now facing a predicted £33 million deficit by 2025-6, a value which has risen by 60% from just two years ago. Since the pandemic, some politicians have called for fresh focuses on free public facilities with limited success and a proposal by the Green Party earlier this year to spend £20 million on new London underground loos was rejected by Labour London Assembly members. So, Nabil, what's this all about? Why, in one of the richest cities in the world, is there such a lack of basic public toilets? And should we all be concerned about this? It's 2023. Why are we still in need of toilets in arguably one of the most, I would say, the world's leading transport system? The railways in London are over 160 years old and the fact that we don't have 
toilets in every single station is cause for concern. I'll be honest with you. Yes. Yeah, so visiting um, Japan a few years ago and, and just realizing that every single loo in Tokyo has public loos on both sides of the of the ticket barriers. So you can go to the loo on the platform. You can also go to the loo in the ticket office. And that's on top of the like, incredible number of public loos that are just around Tokyo in general. And it felt really embarrassing coming back to London after after that trip and being like, oh, my God, like, where on earth are our loos? It's like we're all relying on Weatherspoons and McDonald's to, to sort of provide these these services that should really be provided by um, the taxpayer and the public sector. Um, so a report in 2019 that was titled Taking the Piss from the Royal Society of Public Health found that 20% of people fear that a lack of facilities nearby can tie them to within a small distance of their home, acting as this so-called loo leash. I wonder how you, you know, how does that impact certain groups of, of society disproportionately in their communities? There's a lot of research and data that shows some of the most frequent users of London's public transport system are the elderly and, and, and young people, both of which I, I would argue would require access to facilities. And if uh, a sort of transport system doesn't necessarily meet the needs of two of its largest service users, I would argue that it, it, it's in need of a bit of rejuvenation. Part of me thinks is a Victorian thing, whether like at the time of construction, toilets were seen as a necessity public toilets were seen mm. as a necessity mm. or whether it's a class thing mm. i don't know mm. um it feels like it, to some extent it must be an, an austerity thing whether that's you know recent austerity over uh, under the co- current government or, or kind of previous waves of, of, of public cuts um, a survey of 190 local authorities by the bbc's shared data unit revealed that council chiefs expect to be 5.2 billion pounds short of balancing their books by 2026 and that is after making an expected 2.5 billion pounds of planned cuts in that context, in this context where just councils have no money and many of them are in these huge deficits, should we be looking to local authorities uh, as to provide the solutions to this kind of lack of public toilets? Or do we need to try um, campaigning elsewhere? It, it feels strange to me that in, in a country with nearly 200 billionaires, uh, there doesn't seem to be the cash for something as fundamental and uh, inexpensive as some, some public lavatories. Um, so where should we be concentrating our, our energy as kind of pro lu activists? I think austerity has been sort of the word of the decade, if not the, the past two decades. Mm. Um, a lack of public investment doesn't necessarily always mean that the public sector entities who, who are charged with the responsibility of of our transport system, such as the GLA, such as the local authorities, um uh, I wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that it, it's with malicious intent. Ultimately, uh, the paper trail goes back to who's governing at the time and what is deemed valuable and worth investing. And so uh, mm. the the sort of financial allocations of a nation is sort of laid bare. Well, the views of a government is laid bare in its financial allocations. And so if... A government doesn't see that a public toilet for uh, a couple stations on the Northern Line is valuable or worth resource, worth taxpayers' money. I wonder what they deem valuable.
A new centre dedicated to the history and legacy of Britain's anti-apartheid movement is set to open in London next year. According to The Guardian, the centre, exploring the UK's role in the South African anti-apartheid struggle, will be based in the former headquarters of the African National Congress in Islington, following a £1.2 million grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Between 1978 and 1994, the Georgian-era building, which is now uninhabited and in serious disrepair, was the focal point of the coordinated international opposition to apartheid South Africa and acted as a base to ANC leaders Oliver Tambo and Thabo Mbeki, later president of South Africa. In 1982, the apartheid South African government's security forces detonated a bomb in the building, injuring one ANC member and causing severe damage to the structure. The centre, which is expected to open next year following its creation by architects Al Jawad Pike, will feature a permanent exhibition, cafe, community garden, archive and a shared workspace, and promises to include temporary exhibitions highlighting current issues such as migration, inequality and cultural marginalisation. So, Nabil, you know, what do you make of this announcement and what is the significance of having the centre in the old ANC HQ? I think it's poetic justice to have such a such a monument in Britain especially it is a beautiful thing to see. I mean, if we rewind to the 1980s, it was the Tories who demonised Mandela and the ANC as terrorists. And to see the city and, and Britain celebrate the ANC and, and, and the anti-apartheid movement in such a way to allow it to physically occupy space is a move in the right direction, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I sort of agree, but some have questioned whether the, the new centre does kind of gloss over some of that very difficult history that the UK was kind of clearly complicit to some extent in propping up the apartheid regime, in demonising the ANC and Mandela, um, and, you know, potentially is still complicit in apartheid in other countries. So how should a building like this navigate that kind of fraught political context in which the UK's role is not clear-cut, it is kind of contested? It's tricky because I do agree with you. Britain Britain is still complicit in apartheid that is ongoing today in other regions of the world. I So I think the first step to any constructive discussion and hopefully in the direction of positive change is to have that discussion. And I, I very much see an institution like this as, as a prompter for those discussions. We're very much in the middle of a period where there are contested narratives of history. And this, I feel, provides an opportunity to, to address some of that, even on a sort of public sphere level. Uh, we all love a bit of a Twitter discussion. So um, a simple discussion amongst family members, amongst friends, I feel like is worth having. And and really that's what I feel like this space could could embody and prompt with the general public. I think it will take a couple of decades before the political sphere is able to sort of engage in that conversation. Mm. Um, but we got to start with the public first. Yeah. So one of the nice things about this centre is that as well as these kind of conventional um, uh, things that's going to ha- house like temporary exhibitions, community centre, cafe, 
you know, the usual sort of stuff you'd expect to find in a decent cultural institution. It's also uh, specifically going to set out to collect oral history recordings uh, and is going to be using a lot, making a lot of use of sort of schools programs and volunteer outreach programs. Um, you know, you're a creative practitioner, you use various different formats in your work. How important are those kind of alternative types of uh, kind of cultural engagement like oral history? I think the world operates on stories and this is a bit of a unconventional sort of uh, view, but I, I, I don't believe that there is an objective truth that's ever been communicated. I believe all historical accounts have been subjected to a degree of subjectivity. Mm. Um, and so the more we can record and archive accounts with varying degrees of subjectivity, the closer we get to an objective truth. What has been quite prevalent in, in modern history is a particular perspective, a particular position has recorded, written and filmed a specific account of a historical event. And I believe there's an importance to record and, and, and archive and film and, and sing about and dance to and draw and paint other accounts of history so that even if accounts are contested and, and conflict with one another, it provides a richer analysis of historical accounts, in this case, apartheid in South Africa, because in the 80s, it was seen as a sort of terrorist movement after 20 years, maybe 30 years of collection of alternative accounts through speeches, through campaigning, through through literature, was um, the experience of black South Africans heard and uh, a, a richer analysis and a better understanding of um, the experience of South Africa was sort of communicated to the world and that led to the South Africa we see today. Just one week remains until London's largest celebration of special architecture and neighbourhoods kicks off with the first weekend of the 2023 Open House Festival. Running from Wednesday the 6th to Sunday the 17th of September, the festival offers an opportunity to go inside some of London's most remarkable buildings, from skyscrapers to local authority housing estates. The full programme of buildings, open walks and guided tours is available now on the Open House website, offering more than 1,000 drop-in events, all of which are free to access for everyone. This year's guest curators, hailing from an array of backgrounds within the realm of built environment, have lent their distinct voices to the 2023 Open House Festival. Their carefully curated festival collections explore diverse themes and narratives from within their own practice and experiences of architecture and uh, the wider urban landscape. Nabil, your contribution to the festival, uh, which is titled Decolonising Wembley, is set to feature a thought-provoking keynote address followed by a panel discussion exploring imperial nostalgia and the built environment using Wembley as a case study. The event will be taking place at 5pm on Saturday the 16th of September uh, at 20 to 21 Bloomsbury Way on Tottenham Court Road. Can you tell us a bit about, you know, this event, what you're planning, what it's going to be like and the issues that it will be addressing? This campaign is three years in the making and uh, it essentially addresses a, a, a very pertinent issue I feel like we have in Britain, which is the commemoration of imperial figures, events. In this particular case, in Wembley as a case study, uh, if we rewind back to nearly 100 years ago, the 1924 British Empire exhibition took place, which was uh, a, a 
massive sort of funfair showcasing the exploits of empire. It was a series of uh, pavilions named after colonies, which you, uh, when you step into, you you would find spices, you would find clothing, but most uncomfortable to hear is you would find people as well. So there were approximately 273 colonised individuals who had to stay within the British Empire Exhibition grounds. So it, it, it was essentially Britain's most recent human zoo. Now, the past is the past and what has happened has happened. But uh, in, in, in sort of Wembley today, there are over 22 commemorations that uh, sort of memorialises this specific event in history, which this campaign hopes to to address and implores the landowners in Wembley to reconsider the 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 celebration that commemoration brings, the uh, memorialisation of such an event, and sort of advocates for education and commemoration of history without romance. Mm. In short. Um, I've 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 assembled the Avengers. Um, so the key note is uh, it's a quick history lesson on what the British Empire exhibition actually is and its impact it's had on Wembley today. The impact it's had on design. The impact it's had on on planning, and it'll be followed by a, a panel um, discussion. Fantastic. I mean, that just sounds so interesting, and I guess a lot of people. I don't know. They may be like they they vaguely heard of th- that exhibition in in nineteen twenty four, and they probably had no idea that there were actual humans being exhibited in the twenties in Britain in in Wembley, and that fact alone is is kind of deeply shocking. It sounds like your event is really going to sort of be very important and 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 quite powerful, potentially quite upsetting. I don't know, like what kind of tone are you trying to strike with this? The intention isn't isn't to upset. I firmly believe and, and the foundation of the work believes in the inherent good of people. And so much of the campaign is an education into historical historical accounts that are seldom communicated but may uh, shift perceptions of the British Empire and allow people to question the nostalgia they feel around sort of Imperial Britain and whether it was a force for good or whether it was actually a misled campaign that perhaps did a lot of harm for the communities that that, uh, you see around London today. Yeah, it reminds me of our colleagues at Open House Santiago in Chile. They dedicated a big chunk of the programme this year of, of their own open house festival to um, the legacy of the, the Pinochet coup, uh, which, you know, it's 50 years since since that um, dictator took over the country and, and caused a lot of harm. And rather than kind of leaning away from this kind of horrible chapter in Chilean history, they, they actually lent into it and they, they, they programmed a whole series of things kind of reflecting on the coup, on those who are complicit, on the legacy that it still kind of has left in Santiago, uh, and uh, particularly on the kind of in- inequity that exists in, in that city. Um, and it does sort of feel like cultural organisations, including, you know, our, our colleagues in open house festivals around the world, are trying harder maybe than they used to 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 explore these kind of very difficult uh, histories that people feel very kind of churned up uh, about why is that important i mean like it feels sort of morally important but like what why do you feel it's important to to go out and and 
tell communities about this stuff, uh, even when they maybe don't want to hear it. Uh, so I grew up in Britain. Um, I consider myself to be British. I am a migrant and I grew up around multiple migrants from varying different backgrounds, all of which have been affected in some way, shape or form by imperialism, um, be it British, be it French, be it Spanish. And the past is the past. But I feel like Britain has forgotten its past. I feel like there's a collective amnesia and that that amnesia leaves a massive question mark as to the status of some of the migrant communities in Britain, but also across the world. So why is there conflict in the Middle East? Uh, surely it's because they're, they're naturally um, hot-headed and violent people, but it's because Britain has forgotten the role that it played in the division of tribes and communities and the introduction of populations and, and, and dynamics that, that causes conflict. The same can be said for uh, nations within the continent of Africa. The same can be said for the dynamic between mainland China and Hong Kong. And it's seldom communicated. And so this, this work is hopefully one of multiple work streams that, that aims to allow Britain to remember a history, um, not with the intention to sort of impose a white guilt upon the population, but rather to, to nurture an understanding through the transfer of information to allow for a much more nuanced approach to solving the world's problems. And it will start with a little corner in Northwest London. It, it, it will start with, you know, m maybe let's not celebrate a horrible event in history, which wasn't horrible for the Britons that attended, but was horrible for the colonised individuals who were subjugated to mockery and caricature of their cultures for the entertainment of of a nation. Um, I, I, I firmly believe in the goodness of people. And I think if people knew, they would, they would abhor such commemorations. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to people's better nature rather than aggravating or, or antagonizing individuals. It's simply just a transfer of information. So that just to sort of remind listeners when that is, that is, um, 5pm, Saturday the 16th of September, so it's like towards the latter end of the Open House Festival. It's at 20 to 21 Bloomsbury Way on Tottenham Court Road, and it's completely free, but you have to book through the Open House Festival website, which the website is program.openhouse.org.uk. Fantastic. So, Nabil, it has been really nice to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for all your work on the Open House Festival. It sounds fantastic. Um, where can listeners kind of follow your, your work and your, your writing and your uh, punditry and your thinking? Uh, you're on social media. So um, uh, if you want to follow the Decolonising Wembley campaign, it's www.decolonisingwembley.com. Um, for my other works, it's uh, um, And you can find me on Instagram, nabil.alkanani um, and uh, I also want to say how much of a, a big fan I am of Open City I think I've seen 
the organization transform um a lot since 2018 and since since the team that I'm sitting with now have taken over um the growth and the uh the the sort of um evolution of the organization into into now being one of the most uh influential voices in the built environment industry um is is a beautiful sight to see so uh, uh I'm a huge advocate of you guys and I appreciate you for having me on that's very kind thank you come again please <laughs> You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. The show is possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free mobile app featuring guides to over 200 museums, galleries and cultural spaces. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early, ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Finn Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher and our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable.